many devices in our world are not smart. Air conditioners, electric guitars, power outlets, factory conveyor belts. It's quite easy to name the devices in our world that aren't smart. And yet there are exciting software applications that we could build around these devices. We just need to know how to interface with them programmatically. We need to be able to know the state of these devices. We need to be able to save that state data, and then we need to be able to use that state data to perform actions that change those devices. And to make these devices smart, we can use a microcontroller, which is a small device with a constrained amount of CPU, memory, and I.O. Device data can be sent to the cloud or it can be processed locally, and that data can be used to perform predictive maintenance or create machine learning models or create simple dashboards so that human operators can understand the state of their hardware. Dirk Didaskalou is the VP of Internet of Things with Amazon Web Services. Dirk joins today's show to discuss the strategy and the philosophy of the AWS Internet of Things set of tools. We talk about a wide-ranging set of topics, including IoT security, edge deployments, and machine learning. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dirk Didescalou, you are the VP of AWS IoT. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for being here. So you've said that if users were able to know the state of every device that they are working with across their infrastructure, they would be able to reason on top of that state data, and they would be able to solve many more problems than we can solve today. What does that mean to know the state of our devices? I think it's very simple. It's just to understand more about the realities of your assets. Think about in a factory. Today, if you want to understand whether a conveyor belt is stuck, typically you have to be there and look at it. What if you knew this automatically in a dashboard? If you're at home and want to understand whether your nice little Roomba robot is doing its job, you don't have to be in the room to understand whether it's actually doing its vacuuming. You can open an app. It's just very simple examples of um, if you have the meaningfulness of getting this information gathered in an application, then you don't have to be physically present or you don't have to be an expert. And of course, you can think if you do this on a much broader scale, you can solve much more difficult problems. And we can talk about some of them if you like. Definitely. We'll get into that. But talking more broadly, what are the challenges of gathering this state data when we're talking about a conveyor belt or a light switch or a dishwasher or an electric guitar? What are the challenges of gathering the state? I think the first challenge is, first of all, of course, to say, do I actually have a means to sense an information on a device? If you talk about a guitar, a guitar most likely was never meant to just figure out in what state it is and then send this information meaningful over the Internet. And then you have the connectivity problems. So that's the first two challenges. And you could argue the advent of the Internet of Things came because now it is so cheap and affordable for almost everybody to actually connect your devices. That was, I'm always joking, IoT was born when you had come together from the Internet revolution, which created, if you like, the cloud and the powerful of, of our data centers, um, what we call the mobile revolution, where you had the advent of this very cheap little tiny microcontrollers and connectivity modules that you connect everything. Because now it's affordable that you can connect a light bulb or you can connect a guitar. Because if you had to add additional electronics, which cost a few hundred dollars, why would you connect a light bulb? But if you can do this for a few th cents, then it might be meaningful. So the challenges were, is there a cheap enough hardware available which can sense 
the state of any type of thing and can you have connectivity which allows you to meaningful and cheaply also connect it to the internet. My understanding is that the proliferation of smartphones has led to a decrease in cost of these kinds of small components that allow us to connect, for example, a light bulb. Can you give any perspective on how the costs have dropped for integrating these kinds of components into previously non-smart devices? That's about areas of magnitude. I started my career in mobile phones or communications. When I was a student, I mean, that, that was the hot thing. I did my PhD in this area. And the first smartphones, or at that point in time, we called them still phones or mobile phones, if you remember, they had the size of uh, suitcases. You had to carry them, and they were on the order of magnitude of tens of thousands of dollars. I don't know whether you remember there were this, um, you were supposed to be a fancy businessman if you had these really bulky devices next to your ears. And then there came this revolution of everybody wanted to have the mobile communications. And I worked for a company called Nokia. And we sold at the end billions, literally billions of those devices to bring this cost down for an entire mobile phone to something like 10 to $15. In order to do so, of course, you needed all of this electronics, all of this transmission um, technology, first of all, getting much smaller and much cheaper. And if you go into consumer and instead of having a few thousand devices sold, but you talk about tens of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, and even billions, then you get the price down. And that is then up to two orders of magnitude that the prices were decreased. And um, as I said, a connectivity module in the beginning, most likely you had to buy more upfront of $500. And today you can get something which is called a system on chip. Think about that it's a tiny little device which looks like a chip, but it has integrated memory, sensing, connectivity, some computing power, and you get this for a few dollars. And if you really go down to the absolute smallest and cheapest, then we talk sub-dollar space, a few tens of cents now. So that was the revolution of, of mobile, which democratized connectivity for everybody. And that's why today everything can be connected, including a light bulb. Most of the listeners are software engineers. They may not be familiar with that term system on a chip. And there's also the term microcontroller, which is another device that you might find in an IoT device. Are these different things? Can you define the term system on a chip and the term microcontroller? Yeah, so most uh, software developers might be familiar with something called a CPU, a compute unit. That's the chip which is in your computer or in your laptop and your mobile phone. That's a pretty powerful chip which can run an operating system, whether it's Linux or Windows or Android. And that is a, a lot of people know about Intel, which is producing them at scale. And that is uh, general compute units, and they are pretty expensive. Um, if you want to do much less compute-intensive things like just sensing or having a thermostat or controlling an LED light bulb, what you would require is much cheaper cost. So, and that is called a microcontroller unit. Think about this. That is a much smaller version of a general compute unit, um, which is purpose-built, which has much less power in that sense that it has less uh, megaflops or compute uh, cycles, and it also has much less memory. And for those compute units then, which are called microcontroller units to work, you need specialized software, which is either written directly in C or it's called a real-time operating system. So and the idea here was if I can have a cheaper hardware with less memory, then of course I need specialized software so that I can make this run. And the real issue here is, it's of course cost. Why would I, if I want to just have a light bulb and LED, why would I need to put a generic, very expensive compute unit into this with an operating system? So rather give me the minimum capabilities or in another area, it's called a digital signal processor, DSP, which then can get it affordable. So that's the biggest difference. 
Think about CPU and a computer. MCU, much cheaper, but therefore also much less powerful, with much lesser capabilities, but then you can get a light bulb price level. Amazon built an operating system for microcontrollers called FreeRTOS. Can you explain what that operating system does? So, yeah, Amazon actually took stewardship of a real-time operating system called FreeRTOS that was originally invented by a gentleman called Richard Berry more than 14 years ago. And Richard invented what is called FreeRTOS by on the premise saying is, wow, it's actually very difficult to program these microcontrollers. You need to be an expert, as I said before, because um, you need to understand the intricacies of these small little microcontrollers because they are not really powerful. So in order to get most of it, you need to really be a guru in understanding what type of registers do I have to program for. And the way to get out of this was to build an operating system for those microcontrollers. And these microcontrollers were very often used in real-time environments. Think about an engine uh, for your car, where it's very important when uh, the fuel gets injected, or any other um, applications which have what we call real-time requirements. So the difficulty was to build an operating system which also has a notion of time and can guarantee certain execution cycles. And the world's most used uh, real-time operating system kernel is called FreeRTOS, and we took stewardship of this operating system. And Richard Berry is uh, uh, now an employee of Amazon Web Services, and we extended the real-time kernel of FreeRTOS with capabilities uh, specifically made for IoT, which were... You want to connect those devices, so you needed a connectivity stack on top of the basic scheduling functionalities of a real-time operating systems. Or you wanted to also make it updatable, so how do I update the software, or how do I secure it? So we enhanced the already existing kernel functions, which is just basic scheduling for software developers with connectivity locally, connectivity to the cloud, um, updatability, and security functionality. And that is now called Amazon FreeRTOS. And it's still, as the name indicates, uh, a free operating system because it's uh, open source under the MIT license. We've done a lot of shows recently about Kubernetes, which is a cluster scheduler, a cluster orchestration system for, I guess it's not exactly a scheduler because you build schedulers on top of it, but it's an orchestration system for connecting different nodes together or different containers on those nodes together. When you're describing FreeRTOS, it sounds like a single node operating system, maybe like, you know, like a Linux distribution, for example. Can you tell me about like the state of wiring together these different components? If I have a factory with all of these different components, how are these components communicating information with each other? Is there like a centralized server that they all need to communicate with or they all talk to the cloud and then the cloud talks back to them? Okay. First, maybe a little correction you about FreeRTOS. FreeRTOS is typically used on a single kernel and specifically on a microcontroller kernel. And it is much smaller than the Linux kernel. So even if you think about embedded Linux, embedded Linux still needs megabytes of uh, RAM and flash. A FreeRTOS kernel needs kilobytes. We talk about here three orders of magnitude. I just wanted to clarify this up front. Sure. Yeah, thank you. If you think about Linux, then then this is a really big operating system. A real-time operating system are really, really super small. But I think to your main questions, how does that all work? Yeah, it's a complex environment. There is not one architecture that fits it all. 
how you can think about this is if I have small little sensors, you use the factory example, if I have sensors in a machine from temperature sensors or speed sensors or any type of sensors, they typically run such real-time operating systems because, or they are DSP controlled because they have very dedicated single-layer functionalities. Then, of course, if they are connected because you have a connectivity capability, then they are typically connected locally on a local connectivity network. And these can be local Ethernet or they can be via Bluetooth or anything else. And then you try to aggregate this in bigger, more powerful devices like a gateway. And these gateways then, they run typically an operating system, whether this is Linux or Windows or even Android. On that type of operating system-based devices, you can have more logic. For example, we as Amazon, we uh, provide something called AWS IoT Free Arcos um, for these microcontrollers and for the bigger operating system, something called AWS IoT Greengrass. That's a runtime which gives no functionality about aggregating all of this data coming from the sensor locally, controlling the machines, doing something which we call pre-processing of data, and then you can send the most meaningful data into the cloud for even broader processing. For example, if you would like in the factory to understand how to optimize my logistics, or you would like to understand how the factory output from one factory is managed for the input of another factory downstream. So that is the, the architecture. So think about it, very small little devices, microcontroller-based, real-time operating system controlled, connecting locally to bigger devices, which can do more logic. Typically, those bigger devices then control to the cloud where you can do then the magnitude of compute and control. Let's say a customer opens a conversation with you and they say, look, I'm operating a candy bar factory and I want to get to a point where I have a really futuristic candy bar factory where everything is connected. I've got predictive maintenance everywhere. I can control everything from a dashboard. But today I just have kind of a state-of-the-art factory, which is, you know, some things are smart, some things are disconnected. I don't really have it in, in, in a great, like, centralized organizational state. What is the strategy for the candy bar factory owner for beginning to make their way to the Candy Bar Factory 2.0? I think the first question a Candy Bar Factory owner would have to answer, what is that you would like to achieve? Because you don't just connect everything for the sake of connectivity. What is it what you would like to do? Would you like to save time in producing your candy bars? Or would you like to produce them cheaper? Or is there something where you want to increase the quality? The idea of IoT is not the technology itself. It's always to want to get a bigger outcome. And that was the question you asked me in the beginning. And you said, hey, what bigger problems can I solve if I know of the state? So that whatever we do, whether it's now candy bar factory or even um, much more complex environments, is what is the actual business goal? So assume the candy bar factory would not say, okay, I would really like to do a faster production line. Then you understand, okay, that's the target. Can I analyze how today is production done and what could I do in order to optimize this? It's a very different question if you would say, no, what I want to do is I want to have a different quality control because then time is less of an essence. So I think the most important thing to learn about IoT, try to first figure out what is it what you achieve because depending on what you want to get as an output, you might have very different approaches, some of them much cheaper and faster, some a little bit more complex because they are more works intense. Does it make sense? Absolutely. So, you know, we've seen these videos, like the candy bar commercial, where it's like the chocolate is drizzling over the candy bar, and the candy bar is like making its way down 
the conveyor belt. So maybe there's some kind of optimization that we need to do specifically between the chocolate drizzling machine and the conveyor belt machine. So if we want to instrument those two devices with some sort of connectivity on each of them, we want to be able to sample the data that's coming off of each of them, what do we need to do? The first, and it sounds actually almost mind-blowing, the first thing to understand is that typically the different systems in the factory are built from different manufacturers. And believe it or not, state-of-the-art today is that many of those are disparate and actually don't talk to each other. So the first question would be to do, okay, if I need to understand the output for, as you said, the chocolate drizzle on the one side, to for the other machine is, okay, can I actually connect those in a meaningful way that I understand the output from the one as the input to the other. And if they come from different manufacturers and if they do speak different languages, and here language in computer term means they have different data formats, they have different schemas, they might not even have the same input-output, that's the first question you would have to answer. And then it's, okay, can I just sense the output? Can I just get it out of the I.O. channels of my existing machine? Can I put them into a standard data format? And can I then make sense of it? So that would be the standard approach. And it's typically, and it's a very good question as well, because one of the biggest questions that we always face talking with our customers is just the simple understanding where is my produce in a factory apparently is still very handily solved today. It's unbelievable. What was unbelievable to me that when you go in so many uh, factories that the control of where are my producer or where are my parts, it's still very much done by hand based on people's papers and pallets that you're just moving around. So there is very few uh, factories today who have actually systems who can tell you at any given point in time where are those producers and where are the different inputs. So that's a Seems like a trivial problem, but believe me, it's not. And just solving, understanding where your produce is and what is the backlog from one machine to the other, if you just can optimize this, already has significant um, improvements in throughput and therefore the yield of a factory. And we talk double-digit percentages here when you think about a factory is really, really, really a lot of money. You mentioned earlier this model where the data coming out of these devices is often aggregated in some sort of hub that's sitting inside the factory and then maybe the hub is communicating with the cloud. Can you describe the software architecture that we might want here in a little more detail? Okay. So for most of the factory systems, the unconvenient truth is that a lot of this data never leaves the factory. Today's system use something what you would uh, in layman terms call something like a flight control system. Um, they are called operational historians. Uh, think about this. This is local databases. It's uh, actually time series databases, which is more or less getting all of the input signals from those devices and track them in an immutable way. And they're, again, proprietary systems. Today, many of those, if not most, are actually not connected to the cloud. So the first question, again, is how can I access those and get the information out of the system? There are different type of um, standards in the factory. One of them called is OPC UA. Think about this as a connectivity standard um, locally plus a data format standard, which more and more manufacturers adhere to. So there's another idea in saying, okay, I have this so-called OPC UA service. Can I use them as aggregation point for the different machines? and then from there go to the cloud. We as Amazon have a new service which we launched last year at our reInvent um, cloud conference which we call IoT Sidewise. And the architecture is as follows. The idea is you use a gateway which you typically normally have anyway on your local network. 
you have software on that gateway. We call this the Sidewise Connector software, which now logs in locally to those databases, yeah, the historians or the OPC UA servers. It can then tag from one console in the cloud all of the input signals. And here we talk about hundreds of thousands of data streams which you can have in a factory from all of those sensors and can aggregate them and then send them to a data lake into the cloud, which is typically then, again, in the sidewise case, a time series database because it's time series data. But from a manufacturing perspective, you're not interested in the individual's model sensor readings of the thousands and thousands of sensors you have in machines. What you're interested in is more operational uh, metrics, for example, an OEE metrics, it's the um, operational efficiency. So what then these systems do, like Sidewise, that if you can then define how do I combine these different sensors coming out of these so-called flight recorders or historians then in the, in the factory, and then calculate operational efficiency metrics for dedicated machines or ideally for your entire factory because that's the important uh, metrics that the operational personnel need to understand whether the machines are working correctly and what they need to do in order to improve. So that's the, the hierarchy uh, that you can put into place in order to solve those problems. Let's give another example. So let's say I'm operating an oil rig in the middle of the ocean. This might be called an edge deployment, and I want to do predictive maintenance. I want to know when different components on my oil rig are going to fail before they fail. This is a very common use case. How does the story change now that we're in an edge environment? I'm laughing a little bit. I think we need first to understand what you mean, edge, because for us, and again, excuse uh, my bluntness here or my, my ignorance, um, when we talk edge as a cloud provider, edge means everything outside of the cloud. So a factory is also an edge. Oh, okay. Your home is an edge. But I think what you mean in an oil rig is what if the edge or means the deployment is not directly connected in the internet? Is that the scenario yeah, that you're after? Yeah, or transient connectivity. Okay, so when you said, yeah, I don't know, I'm in a mine or in an oil rig, I don't have direct internet connectivity, how would that change them from an architectural perspective and how would you deal with that? Is that a question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So, I mean, in essence, what that means is you need to have a lot of the data handling locally because you can't send the data to the cloud to make decision making. That means you have to find a means that you can locally collect, locally aggregate, locally compute, and then also make local decision making. And that's, of course, something which has always been done, but it was always to be tried to locally optimize. And what has now changed in the Internet of Things space? And the, even with those completely local scenarios, which you call an oil rig or which can be in a mine, there is now technology which helps even improving in that situation. Because we, for example, have technology, one, uh, think about a really big appliance that you can put down into these scenarios, which is called a snowball edge. That's, think about a, a glorified thumb drive, which is ruggedized, which can have tens of terabytes of storage, which you can put down, which is then collecting the data, and then you physically move those devices from the oil rig into the cloud for ingest. That's one way so that you can do post-processing to optimize. Another way is, of course, if you have used that data in post-processing and learning then about, okay, how does such an oil rig or how does such a mine function, and you can do optimization, whether algorithmic optimization or more advanced one, which we call machine learning, and then find better models for decision-making, then you can deploy those models back to the edge. And I aforementioned uh, software, which I called IoT Greengrass, which is running on these gateways, which are a little bit more powerful, has the ability to take the logic that was 
uh, calculated in, in the cloud, even a machine learning model, and then you can deploy this to the edge. And the beauty is it takes a lot of compute to train a model, but it takes much less compute to actually use a model for additional prediction or what we call inference. Mm -hmm. So that means if you find a means to collect the data on the oil rig or locally and then get it into the cloud and by doing so optimize a model and bring it then back, you can still get better decision making locally. And then of course, even today, even if you're on an oil rig, there is still a little bit of connectivity. It's called satellite connectivity. So what you then try to do is to figure out what are the additional value adding information that you can aggregate, pre-process, and then send via satellite to the cloud so that you can still do have control over the assets from a central control point. And I mean, mm. in, in an oil rig, of course, security and just the safety is one of the most important issues. So you would put all the security and safety relevant systems that you can still see them online, even though they're mainly managed locally. It's a beautiful description. And so if I understood correctly, let's say I've got this. I like the mining example, or actually I like the oil rig example because it's potentially satellite accessible but like maybe you so you first you would take this snowball edge which is this hardware device that you can just bring to your on-prem deployment you can suck a bunch of data from your oil rig onto the snowball edge and then you can mail it back to the cloud and then you know the cloud provider you know ingests it and then it trains a machine learning model and then you can deploy that model which will be much smaller maybe you deploy it you know via some satellite internet connection or uh, some other internet connection that you, some transient internet connection that you managed to get, and then you can deploy that model. And then you you also described the the fact that you do have some connectivity, perhaps through satellite, that would allow you to do some control over the oil rig. Maybe could you describe like what are the patterns for controlling these kinds of edge deployments? Or, or do you typically have like a software engineer that's that's on on site at the oil rig that is you know looking at the results of of a machine learning model and they're making control decisions on there or do you have somebody who's remote and they are seeing the data that's coming in through the satellite and they're making the decisions so oh, that really depends on what is the actual deployment so you can't generalize this why i don't like the oil rig scenario is because oil rigs are really complex mechanisms and, <laughs> okay uh, you have a ton you have a ton of people sitting there and really monitoring because if something goes wrong there in real time it's catastrophic right and that means you have a ton of specialists sitting there in, in order to try to prevent anything that goes wrong but it's still the right example because you can generalize it in a way and saying is depending on what is your workload so if something which is really catastrophic you will always have people locally there but there are many others where you ex explicitly don't want to have personal because you might have too many of those. What if you try to uh, monitor just uh, in agriculture all of your fields? You can't have a human being standing next to every field and just looking at the sensor readings. So there you definitely want to have a central control system. Also, just in, when you want to optimize more complex logistics, it is very unreliable just to have human beings all the time looking and staring potentially at gauges and figuring out where you are, aggregating this, and then making via communications make sure that all of the information is aggregated. So whenever you need more real-time information, whenever it's distributed, then, of course, having those systems controllable from one point is really, really beneficial, and sometimes it's the only way to do so. 
So it really depends on the scenarios. But also coming back from, from your summary, the starting point is always get a lot of data into the cloud, specifically when you want to build a machine learning model. But once you have your first instances, then optimizing those models also needs less data. And some of them can be done locally, and some of them can be also be done in the cloud. And then the beauty is that you don't have to each time uh, bring snowballs back to the cloud. Then with less data, you can improve. So the beauty of machine learning is once you have built the initial model, so training the initial model is very cumbersome, takes a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of annotation, but then refining models needs much less data, which of course then the ever um, improving system, and that can be done partially uh, locally and then of course partially with much less connectivity to the cloud. The listeners are starting to get an understanding for the scope of different problems that are in the purview of AWS here with the IoT stack of technologies that you're building. One technology that I'd like to to discuss is AWS Greengrass. Can you explain the the collection of problems that Greengrass is solving? So yeah, AWS IoT Greengrass is a piece of software which is not running in the cloud, but which is running on premises on our client infrastructure, which can then be a gateway, for example. We talked about the CPU-based devices. Think about a gateway. Or think about a more complex engine that you have or machine in your factory, which typically can run Linux. So the, the question we had to answer for our customers was, if I have to do local control, and I need to do this very fast because I can't rely on uh, the physics of sending data to the cloud and coming back, which is called, of course, there is, of course, the speed of light is pretty fast, but sometimes it's too slow for security-relevant decision-making. Or, as you said, if I'm on an oil rig or in a mine and I don't have the connectivity, how can I bring some of the functionality that we build in the cloud with AWS IoT and the services locally to the edge that I can build those services that they would work also when my factory or my machines are offline. So that's the starting point. And we thought, okay, is there a way that we can build something like a software runtime that we could install on existing devices so that you don't even have to buy new ones? So typically a gateway, which then brings the basic functionality um, on the local side. And Greengrass does exactly that. Greengrass brings you fundamentally four things. It gives you a local messaging bus so that you can have locally smaller and bigger devices connected to each other. And then you can control the message flow between them without that you have to send any of those messages to the cloud. That's called the Greengrass uh, message bus, which is using an MQTT message broker, one functionality. The second functionality you want to do locally is you want to take local actions. So if one sensor sends something, then maybe the control unit needs to say, oh, that's a temperature, it's too high, and maybe I need to open a control valve because otherwise a container might burst. So you need to take actions, local actions. And what Greengrass brings you is what we call a runtime for Lambda execution. In the Amazon world, we call something serverless when you don't have to manage infrastructure anymore. And the way of executing code at scale at AWS is called, IoT, uh, it's called AWS Lambda. It means it's a function, it's a server, that a based service in the cloud normally where you give us code and then we execute the code for you each time uh, there's a given trigger. And you don't have to manage underlying infrastructure and you literally only pay for the milliseconds of code execution. And the idea was, wow, if this is the new paradigm of how you build applications, can I write the exact same Lambda functions that I can execute them in the cloud and can them execute locally as well? So that's why Greengrass has this Lambda runtime. So now you can execute code in any given point in time. The third thing 
what we brought with the green grass to the edge was something which is called data and state synchronization. In IoT, the typical programming model from software is a trigger-based action model. And when you have a pops-up trigger-based action model, you don't have the notion of state. Uh, you have a trigger, you have an action, and then you start all over again. So, but for many applications, you need the notion of state and have a memory. So states and data synchronization both locally and from local to the cloud is the third functionality we brought into AWS Greengrass. And the last one was security. Because even if you are not connected to the cloud, you want to secure your local deployments. So making sure that you have a certificate authority locally available where your small little sensors can still be identified and can say, oh, that certificate on that sensor is valid. And you can have something what we call TLS endpoints or transport layer security encryption endpoints. That is all of that functionality on a high level. That's what Greengrass gives you. So local messaging, local code execution, state and data synchronization, and security authority. That's the core of Greengrass. And then, of course, once you have those as a deployment mechanism locally, then you can extend it. And we extended it, for example, so that today you can have now local machine learning inferencing. Because now with all those mechanisms, we just made sure that if you have a trained model um, from a machine learning exercise in the cloud, then by just deploying this model to the edge via Greengrass and having these Lambda capabilities, now you can have automatic machine learning deployment to the edge and then local inferencing. Or you can have then, of course, take benefit of what we call local resources that are available only locally, not in the cloud. Because if you have a machine, of course, the machine might have different capabilities, might have a camera associated to it, or might have different sensors. So Greengrass now has something what we call local resource access, and then you can access all of the additional hardware elements which are, which are intrinsic and inherent to your specific implementation. So that is what AWS IoT Greengrass does. And it works um, in, in consultation with IoT Core, the IoT Core service, and with Amazon FreeRTOS. So the idea is whenever you have a Greengrass deployment locally, it will automatically synchronize with the cloud via AWS IoT Core, and it will also automatically work with everything which is built from a microcontroller perspective on Amazon FreeRTOS, which connects to it. So the complicated infrastructure of I have the small devices, I have bigger devices which can aggregate, I send all of this in the cloud, and then I can manage that. That was the idea why we built AWS IoT Greengrass, and that it works together with IoT Core and Amazon FreeRTOS. In a previous episode, we talked about machine learning at the edge, and we touched on Greengrass a little bit. That was another show with an AWS engineer. And one thing I got the impression of it, so one use case that we talked about was like a shipyard, and you've got these shipping containers, and it's a really big environment, and you've got another, this is another scenario where you have disparate connectivity. You don't necessarily have a great internet connection throughout the entire shipyard, and there's tons of data that you could potentially be connecting, potentially using. In this kind of environment where you have like uneven connectivity, you probably have to do things like Bluetooth or, you know, maybe mesh networking. Can you tell me a little bit about the state of the art of, of networking and, and what kinds of problems you have to solve? Again, networking is a really vast area to, to discuss, and it depends really what you want to do. So you mentioned specifically Bluetooth. Bluetooth is a short-range technology which doesn't need a lot of power. So if you want to build devices that have a battery and that lasts very long, if you would connect them via Wi-Fi or cellular, 
then typically that drains batteries pretty fast. So the problem would be, how would I charge this? So you talked about a shipping container. If I put a tiny little sensor in a shipping container and I would have to charge it every two weeks because it runs out of battery, not a good idea because, I mean, just putting it on a ship and getting it around the globe takes six weeks. So the idea is, okay, what is the right transmission technology for the right application? It's again, it always starts with the same question, what problem do you want to solve? Because if I'm in a factory and I'm stationary, Wi-Fi might be the perfect wireless technology. In most factories, you don't even need Wi-Fi because you wire everything because it's even more reliable to have a local internet um, or Ethernet application. Others we talked already about on, on oil rigs have to rely on something like satellite. So the unfortunate thing is there is not a simple answer about that will be the future of connectivity. Different type of connectivities, different type of data transmission needs have very different technology requirements. The beauty, of course, is that we have many of those available. The drawback is that you ideally have to understand all of them depending on how complex your environments are. But we as AWS, we are not just working with one or two sorts of this connectivity. So there's a differentiation between what we call physical connectivity, which is the actual physical implementation. So would you use a low energy Bluetooth or would you use a Wi-Fi or would you use an RF? And then you have what is called the logical connectivity, how you send data over those um, established connectivity methods. And by separating them, then you can more or less build your applications independent of the physical connectivity and can always choose the right one that you would like to have for your application. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So we'll begin to wind down the conversation because I know you, you've got somewhere to be soon. Just a few more like high-level questions. So I think a lot of the developers who are listening to this show are they think of themselves as like building web applications or building smartphone applications, and they probably haven't really taken a close look at IoT. I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there. Are there any common misconceptions that developers have about IoT, or maybe you could give some description of the technologies that can get people excited or get them thinking about how to make a transition from being a desktop web developer to an IoT developer? First of all, IoT is just a buzzword. I think nobody should be intimidated by IoT. IoT just puts together, if you like, technologies that you now can connect physical objects which originally were never intended to be connected. So when you separate the IT world, which is the information technology, from the OT world, which is operation technology, means think about machines, light bulbs, anything else. This is this long-standing joke. When you combine OT and IT, then you get IoT. But in essence, it's the same type of technologies. I mean, it's connectivity you need in IT and in OT. It's writing software code, whether you put it on embedded software or you put it in the cloud. It's a different type of code, but it's still code. What I think is most interesting is to understand what type of problems you could solve. And the reason why I'm so excited about IoT is it can solve some super basic fundamental problems. And I give you some examples because that is maybe the most exciting part of why would I look at connecting a physical object? Why would I look at handing all the complexity of this fleet? You talked about green grass, you talked about containers and machine learning at the edge. And some of them are very, very complex problems, but some of them are very simple. I mean, we work with a company, it's a startup. Think about a startup called Vantage Power. It's a UK startup. And they are providing systems for electrifying big buses. I mean, I spoke with their CEO. He's really excited and was saying, okay, my mission is I want to have my contribution to climate change. And how can I help? Okay, there's all of these vehicles out in the world and they all pollute because they have the combustion engines. What if I can have these very heavy-duty vehicles and get electric, electrical um, powertrains? 
And that, that sounds all great. And then he figured out, oh, if you put them into these big buses and everywhere else, this is actually very immature technology. It works well, but what do we know about if something breaks down? And think you have one of these nice little red buses in London, and they are running, and then something would go wrong, and the bus just breaks down. And then that's a pretty big nuisance because you have to figure out how you get there. The poor people can't then get from A to B. And what they figured out and saying is, guess what? Is there a way, how could we predict if something goes wrong? And they were doing the following. They were just using all the data that they had available coming from all of the batteries in these buses. And they were ingesting something more than a trillion data points. And they were building a machine learning model. And here the question was, could I find signals in the data that will indicate that one of my batteries will break down? Because they had measured all of this information and stored it. Whenever something went, broke down, they could go back and see this. And they were able, by just asking that question and using now a lot of data, to build models which could predict four weeks in advance if one of the subcells in their batteries would break down. And think about the impact. That means this now. They have installed this now on all of these buses. And that means four weeks before something would go wrong, they get a signal and can say, oh, Great. We better schedule something whenever the bus is in the depot. That's a very tangible outcome that you can have. Or there's another company, Pentair. Pentair is a, air, is a filtration company. They build filtration systems for both professional areas like uh, beer brewing, but also for fish farming. And they were telling me about one of their biggest problems that they tried to solve. And they were saying is, there's a really big issue for humankind, which is called the protein challenge. There's even a UN program, which I called, is called the 2040 protein challenge, where they figured out that in 20 years from now, 2040, there will be roughly 2 billion more people on this planet than today. We go from 7 to 9 billion. But unfortunately, more than 1.5 billion then will not have enough protein to eat on a single day basis, which is a humongous problem. And I'm saying is, and if you would try to feed them with standard meat, the meat production capabilities are, are incapable of, of, of getting there. So one of the potential solutions for them is fish farming because apparently fish farming is one of the best contenders in a closed food chain um, because it's, there's much more yield and excuse me if I use the word yield now with fish about how do you get protein out of this and then they're trying now to build with, the, with their customers really really big fish farms. Think about size of airplane hangars and you can imagine if you have millions of fish in such a big type of aquarium something goes just slightly wrong and you have an epidemic and there are millions of fish that's catastrophic. So they are now building systems and instrumenting their pumps and the filtration systems and the water just to see, okay, can I sample and get all of the information from chemical content, situations including temperature, uh, salt. You imagine everything you can think of and feeding into understanding how do I have to handle those systems so that I can build sustainable fish farming to solving one of the bigger, greater humanity problems which is world hunger. So which were unthinkable because you could not do this as a human beings because the data that comes is too big. You cannot just stare at it and understand it. We're going even so far and saying is, you know what? When you have, look at those fish from the sidelines, they have all of these funny patterns on, on the side of fish. And I can't see fish apart, but they said if they use cameras and use machine learning because it's like our thumbnail print, fish can be identified by their patterns.
and they have no machines learning models, which now you can look at fish and you can identify an individual fish out of millions and can see how this fish is developing over time and when they are at a certain stage and when they are right for harvesting. So this is problems that you would have not been able to solve without this technology. So yes, IoT can help you improving your efficiency. INT can build better products which get better over time, but IoT can also solve problems which were unable to be solved beforehand for the greater good. And if that's something you're excited about, I think that's maybe the best reason just to go and look into IoT and what the technology can do for you. But at the end of the day, it always starts with the very first question that you, that you started the interview with, was saying is, if you knew the state of everything and you could reason on top of that knowledge, which problems would you solve? One said, I want to solve world hunger. Somebody else says, I want to make sure that there's less pollution. And another company might just say, you know what, I want to make more money because I can make better products or I can produce them cheaper. All of them very relevant. Dirk, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow. Wow. 